Hello, welcome to CritCast. I'm John from Can You Roll a Crit? Uh, and today we're talking to you about uh, how to grow a local scene or gaming scene for Warhammer Underworlds. Uh, with me today is Jack. He, uh, well, uh, he's a longtime friend and part of the reason I continued and started playing Warhammer Underworlds back with Shadespire. So I'll just let uh, Jack introduce himself. Yeah, hey guys. So as John said, my name is Jack. I, I live in London. I've known John a while been playing tabletop games on and off for absolutely ages and um i guess i was one of the first people in london to start playing underworlds really so um i'm going to talk a bit today about how that grew um and some of the things we did to kind of grow the scene and make it a very welcoming and fun place for players to get games in and um eventually become quite competitive as well yeah, because um, we yeah we started playing around the same time. Then I think we first met at the tournament at Warball Games, I think, in November. Yeah. Um, and then for there it was just searching, and then but you kind of kickstarted it all just with uh, hosting a tournament at Hate, and then just kind of branching out at nearby local events and just can, like starting the basics and just getting everyone playing together. Because yeah, if if you weren't around and like building that framework i wouldn't have had um the ability or will to keep playing and supporting the game um so to everyone i've beaten it's kind of your fault so oh great thanks that's that's amazing um so yeah we we had it it was really interesting when the game first came out so i I came across it because one of my friends said look come down to the local store and help me learn this game and um, within about 10 minutes i said oh this game's amazing i just went and bought it and um, we started playing originally in one of the local gaming stores in London. And um, London's quite a unique place because there's so many different stores and clubs. Um, it's one of these really nice problems to have. And it's a very big place. So people come from all over town to play in different places. Mm. So we, we first got a, a regular night um, in a store in the, towards the center of London. And it's a handful of players. Um, and then from there, we, we started going, going to other stores and um, other clubs to play as well. And we, we quickly realized that there was small pockets of maybe three, four players in different areas. And it was quite hard to find new people initially anyway. So um, we started running some tournaments. So this was way before the organized kits came out from GW. So there, there were some stores running like regular tournaments with prizes. There was clubs running tournaments. And I think at that time, I organized a tournament at um, HATE, which stands for um, Hackney Area Tabletop Enthusiasts over in East London. Yeah, we're very um, friendly, even though we're full of hate, but in a different way. Yeah, no, the, the name's a bit confusing. It's, it's one of the friendliest clubs I've, I've ever come across. And it's this reason I kind of regularly play there. And um, yeah, so we, we organized a tournament there because um, I have the space. Um, there's no any funds raised for that club goes directly back into the club, which is I'm a big fan of. And there wasn't really an organized um, play pack at the time. So we kind of winged it a little bit. Um, we yeah, because based- around that time, organized play was supposed to come out. The organized play kit with the trophies and stuff was supposed to come out about November, December time. Uh, but then that got delayed. So we were all kind of just, we were doing that weird thing where we were just playing for fun. Well, there were prizes, but it's mostly just like store credit or, you know, a bit of terrain or something, uh, which is very different to now where people only generally turn up to tournaments where there's a trophy. 
or we were living in the, the dark ages that you could say. So it was just just turning up to have games and have fun with people. Yeah, no, I think that was the, the, the main purpose initially um, for most people was just to have fun and learn the game. And a lot of people involved in the, the scene back then were still getting to grips with the system and the, the meta and the different combinations and synergies. And the focus from my perspective has always been to have a very fun and friendly scene because we've probably all been to these clubs and stores and tournaments where you end up playing someone and it's just a really poor experience. Um, you know, they may, may be quite aggressive or a very heavy rules lawyer or a slow player. All these things kind of detract from the overall fun you can have in a game. And when we started playing Underworlds, the thing that attracted most people to it was one, how um, compact and good the rule system was and also how quick you could play it. And it was really important for people in London. They, they can get that done quickly. They can carry around the components and the miniatures and rules in a small bag so they don't have to carry the big, huge cases, etc. And um, by enabling people to have fun, it helps to grow the scene. So I think the, the biggest challenge we had initially was trying to get more than three players, which sounds absolutely bonkers now, but people are usually um, involved in other systems and they see a new system like, oh God, you know, how much time do I have to commit to this? How, how much money is it going to cost? And I think with Underworlds, it was a very easy sell because if someone, if you're in a gaming club or a store and someone's coming over kind of casting out in the game, you can very quickly sit them down and say, look, just play one game. It'll take 20 minutes. And if you don't like it, that's fine. Um, and then most of the time they, turns out they do like it and they start asking how much does it cost etc and if you compare it to other systems out there it's um it's very very affordable and yeah because i think one of the biggest things for us was the price and uh ease of access and transport because i used to play well i still play them but i was mainly a sigma and 40k player so coming back to just having a really compact game which was the first time for me to play a skirmish game like that um, appealed to me and a lot of other players because I think you were one of the people who picked up the game uh, but you hadn't picked up anything like Games Workshop game related for like years or months. Yeah, so I, I kind of dropped back into GW games after 8th edition dropped for 40k and I was playing that a bit but I was like, okay, you know, I, I actually prefer skirmish level games um, I, I don't know why, I just do and I kind of, as I said, I've gone into Underworlds accidentally and I was very surprised just how um, how good of a game it was. And I really enjoyed the fact that I could pack everything away in my work bag, go to work all day, go to a store or a club and not carry an additional bag, box, etc. And um, when you're on public transport in a packed kind of London um, transport system, that's really, really useful. And that was quite attractive to people when we'd be at clubs and stores because they would turn up with their huge kind of items that they need to lug around and we'll be there with our nice compact little bags um, and having lots of fun as well. And I, I think the, the the big challenge when you're, you're trying to grow a scene is to get people excited about the game and be very welcoming. And um, for the first maybe six to eight months, I didn't really plan on winning any games or tournaments. It was just about having fun and trying to ensure my opponent had fun, which is a skill in itself being a, a fun player to play against and being a fair player to play against. And these kind of, uh, these kind of tenants are very important to me. And that was slowly kind of replicated through the local scene by getting a number of people on board that were very front friendly. 
very um, very understanding. So there, there's some great times where we'll be playing a game and someone's got a rule wrong or they made a mistake. It's absolutely fine to kind of go back as long as it doesn't mess up the entire game, um, especially when you're kind of learning stuff. So the the initial challenge was trying to get people excited. So we, we kind of set up shopping clubs and stores and they could people could see what the game was about. We could introduce them to the game quickly. And um, a lot of people just love the fact that they could turn up and play without needing many components or bringing down a big army. And I'd always make sure that I would have a spare warband and a spare deck with me. So if someone wanted to have a game or didn't bring their stuff, I'd be like, look, use mine. Um, equally, I would always make sure that I had a warband which wasn't super competitive. So I always had like three, two or three warbands with me or two or three builds with one, the, the deck or the build I would use against people that are good at the game and then the deck and the build I'd use against people who are learning, um, which I, I think is quite important because I've, I've had demo games in other systems where you play against someone that's really good at the game and they just wipe the floor with you and it kind of turns you off a bit because you feel like you haven't really participated. Yeah, because I think one big issue we had was um, just starting. We had, the, yeah, we had the small player base because um, it was still relatively new. Um, but the issue we had, it was a competitive game, but we wanted to show you didn't have to be hyper competitive to have fun. You could have fun playing, not just by winning. Um, and yeah, I learned a lot from that of a lot of that from hate and you because uh, I think yeah, what you said about. Like now I always bring um, two warbands, as you said. So like my main competitive warband and then another warband to either teach or have fun with. Because, yeah, as you said, I don't I don't learn or I, and I find uh, people don't learn if you just kind of steamroll them. Um, if you make it more even, more interesting and show them more mechanics instead of just beating them, even though you learn a lot from your losses, you kind of be, need to be able to play something where you can break down how you won. And I think an important part of that is um, even just going up front saying like, uh, you can either play my really competitive warband or my, or my casual warband, like or how new are you to the game? And I think a good important thing that a lot of people miss out as well is like the post-game chat, uh, where you just go over what happened because um, you kind of don't want to go over what has happened during the game. Um, it's it's You have to remember it, but if you go over after the game, you don't expose anything during the game, but also it helps your opponent figure out. And it's that's even in itself is a skill because you have to, you don't want to tell your opponent what happened. You kind of want to give them the pieces so they can kind of figure out themselves because you don't want to kind of just spoon feed them because then you have the issue of just going, oh, I beat you because I did this and this and this and you didn't do that, that and that. Um, uh, but I, yeah, it's something, yeah, you and everyone from Hate Was Playing really showed really well to the scene. Uh, and I think that's part of what kept me playing because, yeah, you need, when you play people, you need them to be able to see how and what they did wrong instead of just being beaten. Or even when they beat you, you go like, oh, you did this really well, but you could have done that to be more efficient and stuff. Not just because you're, you're trying to win, but just to maximize how well they're playing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of just the basics of coaching, really, instead of just saying, look, as you said, I, I won because I'm amazing and I did this huge combo, which kind of won the game for me. You can say, here's some things you could have done differently. Um, here's some things which you did really well that, that kind of put me on guard and made me think I have to think twice about a few things. And it's a very similar situation when you're doing demo games as well. So often, um, if I'm running a demo game with someone, I'd, I'd give them... I'd, 
I'd either know what was in their hand or I have a vague idea and I'd say, look, you could do this. This is one option you could do. Here's another option. Um, and also, I would make sure that sometimes I wouldn't play the most optimal move for me. I'd play the most optimal move to demonstrate the mechanics and to give mm, my opponent yeah. as many different decisions as possible. Um, and, and also, sometimes I'd, I'd do moves which wouldn't really be the right thing at all, but it would be quite fun and entertaining. So, um, an example could be like uh, kind of something that will make you suffer or um, something that's like a one in a million chance of happening. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, who cares? It was a fun try. So, it, it's just all about trying to demo demo the system, demo the, the breadth and the, and the depth of the system, but also do it in a really fun way. And then you can take that mentality, as you kind of mentioned, to into kind of games with more experienced people as well. And I think what's what really cemented it for me um, in terms of how we grew the scene a bit differently to maybe other systems and other ways of doing it was at one of the London Grand Clashes. And um, I think that was the first, if I remember, that was the first big tournament that I'd been to outside of GW. Because I think we, me and you, we went to the um, the one up in Nottingham, didn't we? When it was really oh yes, snowy. the first uh, Warhammer Gro- Warhammer World Grand Clash that was in I think March twenty eighteen. Yes, because that was the snow one. It almost got cancelled. <laughs> yeah, I just remember we were walking around Nottingham, absolutely freezing, and um, GW did a fantastic job running the event, and I, I was really um, pleased to see how they ran that one because they were under quite intense pressure. And, yeah, because um, they they did most transport was down they were supposed to get 140 or 120 players for the first time and they only ended up with 60 because half of them cancelled um but our biggest fear was like in london and the surrounding area everyone who we were like been helping grow the scene with was really chilled out helpful and supportive and we were just kind of terrified that we might playing nationally we'd just run into like a bunch of just everyone else just being interested at uh, win at all costs um but I think that's what was the big turning point for us because at that Grand Clash, everyone was just really chilled out and just exactly like us. Uh, and I think that's uh, carried over to the whole scene internationally for Underworlds in general, which is really good. Yeah, and um, I think the the thing that's driven that, um, that's different to other Games Workshop games, is the fact that when you're playing Underworlds, you have a constant narrative um, or discussion with your opponents. So it's a bit different than, say, 40K or AOS, where it's you go, I go. Um, you'll do all your stuff. I sit and watch for ten minutes, roll some yeah. dice, maybe. In in Underworlds, as you know, you, you're constantly talking to your opponent. I'm I'm playing this card. I'm doing this. So this happens, and um, you can build up a relationship with that player throughout the game, and you, you get a feel for who they are and how they like to play. And I think the really the really nice thing about the rule system is it encourages you to speak to people, and it makes it more of a social game. And I think that's super super important because oh yeah, hundred percent. Like yeah, I mean, the, we, one of the issues I have with Warhammer World Online at the moment is just unless you're playing your friend over like Skype or something, it, it's it feels just really cold <laughs> not being able to speak to your opponent properly because uh, it, yeah, it's kind of like that forty k Sigma thing where Sigma is more flexible because it's more fluid. But it's just like you sit there doing nothing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. It just it's a very social game, and despite it being so competitive, it, it's very fluid. So you do have to be uh, well able to socialize yourself in a way because you can't just sit there and not speak to your opponent. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, when we went up to Nottingham for the first Grand Clash, um, that was really nice to see that everyone's very friendly and. At that time, the meta was very small. Um, 
one in terms of complexity and two in terms of size. And it was just nice to have a community that didn't feel alien to us. So as you said, we weren't surprised and we kind of felt at home. And I think at the the first London Grand Clash, which had, I can't remember how many players, but it was, it was a fairly big, fairly big turnout. I think it and, was about uh, 38 at the London, London GT. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think there was a semi-final and um, I think it was two guys from London. I think it was you versus Laura, actually. Yeah. And, it was me versus Laura. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you, you guys, you play each other a lot and you kind of fell into the way that we play casually. And a lot of the judges were very surprised to see that. Um, I can't remember the details, but I, I know there was um, a few a few moves that had to be undone or something. Yeah. So what happened was, so uh, we I play against Laura a lot. She is one of the core founding members of the London Underworlds group. Yeah. Um, and it was I was using my spike claw swarm, and she was using her fast riders, and basically she got her fighter mixed up. Um, and then that kind of had this cascade effect. So normally it would have been too much to um, repair in a normal game. And we'd like played cards. Um, so it was about into an- another power step. But then she realized that she had taken out, like basically the wrong fighter had been killed and she'd been attacking with the wrong fighter. So I was like, if you're happy, we can just dial it back. I mean, like it was just a few minor mistakes, but I know how to rectify it and it's not too big of a change. And she was like, yeah. So we could, we just went back um an activation basically and swap the fighters around just to make sure because she was she'd accidentally equipped because unfortunately the fast riders are quite easy to get uh, mixed up with because they look the same um uh, but yeah we just made a lot of mistakes but the big thing is i think that's uh, even today what shocks people is when like in general in london we allow people to take stuff back Uh, people get very shocked in grand clashes when i allow people to take stuff back as well just in general tournaments as well um and there's an argument for that as well like you shouldn't make mistakes but we're we're kind of of the mentality uh if someone you should beat someone because you've actually beaten them not just because they made a a silly little mistake which can be taken back but that's that's more down to the player than something that we'd enforce it's just how we feel the game should be played yeah exactly and i i think a lot of that comes from what we talked about earlier where you're learning the game You, you build that community and you have that relationship with people um that being said, you know, at, at bigger tournaments, I can see people not not doing that. But um, it was really refreshing to see that in a, a GW game, people taking that approach and and running with that. So that was the, I think that was the first kind of big tournament we went to outside of London. And from there, we actually met people from different parts of London or, or in the surrounding areas that we might not have necessarily played with much. And that helped us to kind of grow the scene some more because we're talking, where do you play? How do you play? And we ended up going to quite a few different places around London to get some games. And I think at one point it was possible to play Underworlds in London at different venues every third week. Um, yeah, I think cool. I managed to do the challenge where pretty much we were just joking about playing at different places every day. And I think I almost did it. I think I did six places in seven days. Yeah, um, which is crazy when you think about it. That's absolutely insane. Um, yeah, because we were kind of the the lucky thing because we're with Underworlds. Like when you're growing a scene, um, like one of the things is you're looking for venues to play, um, and a difficult thing with that is in London we were kind of lucky at the time because there was multiple gaming clubs and gaming stores. Obviously now you can't play all because of what's going on in the world. Mm. Um, but if you can grow a scene, it's always good to have a local scene that you well a local venue that you can go to 
even if it's just a mate's house like where people can just meet up i think because i think when people think they need to start a scene they need like like 10 tens of people to have regular games with but yeah we only started with like four and then it took a lot of well not effort but it took a lot of work for us because we had to go out finding other players and showing other players that this was a game worth worth uh, investing in because especially at the time um with games workshop games you had a lot of box games that sh- had a lot of interest and like hope for development but they would never were continued so underworld was kind of fighting all of that as well um yeah really i think the point. issue is yeah because i think the issue is um it, it does take a lot of work to grow a scene uh and, and you're gonna kind of have to sacrifice a lot um but I think the result is worth it because, yeah, we started off with four. Uh, now we have regular gaming nights. When it's really packed, we had like 40 um, at one point almost, uh, but we average about 20, 25. Uh, but that took months of work. It wasn't something that uh, just just happened. So if you are trying to grow a scene, it will take a long time. And um, we found us going to events people getting feedback from everywhere that the events were good. The game was good to play. People saw us having fun. Like everyone was helping each other learn. It's kind of that group mentality and just working away. And like, uh, I think we had a lot of weeks where there was just, just me and you or just hardly anyone playing, but we just kept, kept at it. Uh, Cause I, I've, I've even had people at hate tell me like they picked up the game or kept playing just because they saw like me and you just duking out, having fun. Yeah, I think you touched on some really good points there. So from going from, say, four players up to 10 was much more difficult going from one or two to four because everyone yeah. has a couple of friends that they can get involved with. The The challenge we had and the effort that you mentioned was quite substantial to go out to these different places and try and spread the message and recruit players. And we probably spent weeks to months doing that and not necessarily focusing on winning or or you know, having the most optimal builds. It was more about finding the player base. And once you have that player base, then deciding um, where to play, what venue, yeah. um, if you have a, an option of venues, what time. Um, There's lots of discussions around that. And we ended up settling in a place in, in kind of the central part of London because that was the most accessible to everyone. Um, yeah, because um, me and you live more like on the northern, eastern parts of London, uh, but everyone else finds it more convenient to play in central London just because they can go after work. So as you said, yeah, we picked a venue um, that wasn't necessarily convenient for us, but it was convenient for the majority. Uh, I think that's the kind of mini sacrifices you'll have to end up making. um, And you have to, you have to be able to uh, like judge to yourself if you can do that. Uh, But I do think the results are worth it in the end because we didn't even have a regular gaming place uh up in, like it took us say months to get a regular place there because we play at dark sphere in central london um and we got that thanks to jack because he was just organizing set days so like monday every week uh we'd go there but that took a long time to get from just the store to dedicate that evening to us um so even if you can have a even if you do have a group of people and you can find a particular night to meet especially if you're like not using a gaming store. I mean, if you're not using like a gaming club or someone's place, if you're using a store, it may take a long time to even get a dedicated spot to play Underworlds. Yeah, and I think that the consistency is really key. So as you said, there'll be times when only a handful of people will turn up 
Um, we'll, we'll play the same players over and over again. We'll try different builds and, and kind of fun builds and stuff like that. But once people um, can see the consistency, then they realize that, okay, if I invest or, or buy into this game, it's not going to disappear in a few months. You know, there's going to be people playing it. And that's really important when you're trying to grow a scene because people tend to be kind of butterflies. They, you know, they pick up different projects and, and try different things. Yeah. And having that consistency gives a reassurance that, okay, if I do buy into this, I'm going to be able to get games and I'll, I'll continue to be able to enjoy my investment in time and money. And um, we, we were very straight with, we were very lucky in London. We have many stores, many clubs, and we're just very straight with the stores. Say, look, we want to play regularly. Um, do you have space? What does the space look like? Can we see it? We would try different places and then we'll just speak to the community and work out, okay, what's best? What does everyone prefer? It's not really, it wasn't really up to myself or John to dictate where people play is whatever was most important for the group. And I think that's just one of the most important things to remember is that the scene isn't really about you. It's about everyone and you need to do what's best for the wider community as much as possible, even at times where you have to make sacrifices to your own, own play style, your own development, if you're a competitive player or your, um, your, your personal kind of time. Sometimes there'll be times when I'll be absolutely manic at work and still make it down um, where if I wasn't trying to grow the community, I probably would have said, you know what, can we rearrange? But that consistency is so, so important. Yeah, uh, the, like the um, yeah, the consistency is a big thing because yeah, even if it's just like three of us turning up, um, even if we're just getting one table, it also shows to, shows to the store managers that we're we're just consistent, so we're always going to be there. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of sacrifice, um, but like there's ways you can work that in. Um, so the good thing about running your main wall band and an off wall band to teach people, uh, it helps when you're playing. Well, building your repertoire, but by playing different warbands and your skill set, but also you can use how you teach people um, to help your opponent in a way. Like I find, I found it the best way was um, to use how I help people uh, getting started with the game with our local scene, and then I could feed that back when I was playing tournaments competitively, competitively with my main warband, uh, and just helping break down what I did, how I could control that board space. And like I could bet it helped me see what I was doing more because yeah, I was like not playing seriously too much with the local scene, but because I was focusing on showing people a good time and how to play the game. Like important thing I learned from Jack was when I build uh, intro decks now is I try and build aspects from all parts of the game. So I have like one reaction so they can show what a reaction is just a simple reaction. I'll play a generalized warband that won't have too much uh, tricks so they can understand the main mechanics of the game. Um, and you're like, yeah, you kind of like, oh, I'll move this fighter up and like show them like things you wouldn't normally do, like going on guard to make someone more defensive. Uh, like, yeah, the key thing when you're building an intro deck is to make it uh, show everything in the game because your opponent necessarily doesn't have to run everything, but as long as you can show most things that they can get a hang of, like the thing you could leave out at the moment is like magic, like that's 50 50 so it's just like the core principles of just moving attacking being defensive um it helps you with your own foundations but yeah it's also really good at um showing people how to play yeah and i, I think people have different styles as well so if you replicate your own style in any intro deck it one doesn't show the 
the breadth of the games you mentioned, but also people tend to pick on things or pick up things that they really enjoy. So mm. I know you're a big fan of flex and um, I'm a huge fan of aggro. I just like going out there and, and hitting things as quickly as possible, mm. but people play in different styles. And I think, as you said, you need to have that flexibility um, to allow people to say, Oh, actually, I really like this kind of thing. So when I get into the game or when I start building decks, I want more of this. And um the kind of next step of that development is uh, kind of showing people how to build decks and how to kind of tailor for different styles. And a lot of the time, as you said, after games, we'll kind of say, look, can you show me your deck? And you get the deck out, you get the build out, and you say, well, you know, this card doesn't quite work as well as uh, maybe a different option. Or you'll ask them, maybe not tell them they've done they've picked the wrong card, but you can say, well, look, what's your thought process behind including that card in your deck? What are you trying to achieve there? And um, I think that's something you do really well, John, when you go to tournaments, you always have time um, at the end to kind of talk to people after the game and kind of go through that stuff. And it Yeah, because really one of the people. things... Sorry, go on. Uh, well, one of the things I enjoy at the moment is, um, especially when I've put a lot of time and effort into a deck, is like my main decks anyway, is I really enjoy just explaining how they work to my opponent. So it's like the big thing is um, you don't want to tell people, you want them to figure it out um but when you explain like i pick this card and this card normally they don't really work together they don't have much link synergy uh but if they're played in this particular way all of a sudden it unlocks this combo for me and like this combination to score this and that um uh but yeah it's a it's a really important thing to be able to uh just explain and uh because it's like yeah as as jack said it's uh you kind of think you may like something, but once you've played it a few different styles, you, you figure out what's your thing. Like I used to be mad aggro as well, but then like only recently, I think I've more of a control player because of all my flex. Cause it, I'm still a flex player at heart, but I, um, it's this weird thing where when aggro, we call it like the aggro deadlock is what we call it, where like you have this standoff when no one wants to engage first because then the other player can capitalize on it. So you kind of, that's basically control in itself. But that's something I wouldn't p- have picked up on if I wasn't always uh, trying to help people like figure out how, what they enjoy playing and playing different things to show off to other people. Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a really important point because the benefits you can get as a player from growing a scene, a running intro games and, and helping newer players is it exposes you to things which you may not have come across yourself. Yeah. And um, it's sometimes people coming into the game have a different way of thinking, which can help you build your own game and improve your own capability within a particular play style, which is really important. And I think the, ma- the main benefit I've got from personally uh, growing the scene has been having really friendly people that I enjoy playing with and having access to play them regularly whenever I'm available. So um there's many other systems I play that I'd love to be able to play more, but it's hard to find opponents or the opponents I do like to play against may not have the, the availability. Uh, once the scene is kind of mature and, you, and you've got that, that local player base, you know that you can go to your, your club, your gaming store, someone's house regularly, and there'll always be at least a handful of people there which you're friendly with, you, you can have a chat with and play some amazing games. And then you kind of move on from that. You can start going to tournaments together. I think there's been big groups of us in the past we've traveled all around the country for different things and it's a lot more fun when you travel to places as a group than when you do it by yourself or just say with like one other person because you, you know you've got different people you can bounce off there's more to celebrate there's, there's more stuff going on and 
it's, it's really nice when you're at a tournament and you look around and you realize that you know quite a lot of people there and even if you're not doing well you're still rooting well for for one of your friends to kind of you know get to that higher table or get to that higher position and, yeah i think um, a big thing about um building a scene is you kind of have to go um you're kind of building a friendship really uh you don't have to but it really helps if you go into the mindset that eventually these people you regularly play against are going to become your friends um because it's yeah it's it's more than just a game if you're building a local community you're going to be playing the same people over and over again and you're doing it like partly to relieve stress or just have fun or to unwind um and it's like yeah it's it's a good way to get to know the local like gaming players in your area um because it's just something i didn't realize how big the underworld well warhammer scene in general was weird uh london until i started playing and getting to know people so that's another thing you kind of have to keep in mind yeah no, i think it's, it's really important to, to treat everyone equally um no matter if they're an experienced player or a new player, you need to give them the same voice in the community. You need to, to give them the same level of attention. Um, what you don't want to have is the community split between very experienced players and very new players, because then people getting into the game will suddenly get you know absolutely wiped off the board very quickly and then probably not want to play again. So you need to make sure that you have a group of people that understand that we need to maintain the community, we need to grow it. And pretty much all of the very established players in London um, always ask people, as you say now, look, what, what kind of warbands are you bringing to the table? Do you want to play a competitive game? Do you want to play a friendly game? And the, the point of playing isn't necessary to win. The point is to have fun. And by playing loads and by having fun, it means that people have actually got very good at the game, which was never really the intention. It was the intention was initially just to have fun playing this this wonderful system. Yeah. But through repetition and through talking through what you've been doing and running intro games and being very friendly with each other and kind of comparing what's working and what isn't, the the level of competency just kind of skyrocketed to the point where we'd go to kind of store tournaments or, or national events and you look at those those lists at the end of the day and we'll just be peppered through some really high positions, which really amazed me because I never really considered us to be a competitive group. Yeah, it kind of just happened. Um, that was a nice surprise. Um, but I think um, another key aspect with like introducing people to the game is like the greatest strength of Underworlds is its short time span. Like on average, a game takes 30 to 45 minutes. I think the quickest we did an entire best of three was like 20, 25 minutes. Um, but that's that's a different story. But like, yeah, the more you know the game, the faster you can get it done. And I think the biggest thing is it's kind of helped more with the Beast Grave season because um, the thing we struggled before is trying to build decks for other people to use. Um, but now the great thing, it's really easy to demo the game, I'd say, because you all faction cards come with faction decks. Um so if you just want to introduce someone, like you could just have a quick game on a gaming night. You don't have to fully convert someone. Uh, like you don't need to have a night like at a gaming club or your local store where you just continue playing Underworlds. You can just kind of, you know, it's a bit insidious now I think about it, but you just, you know, get one game in, have one game in with them. You know, if you want to play again, just let me know. I'll be always playing, you know, I've got this. And you kind of just tempt them in because that's kind of like what we did. Because um, you've got people who adopt the game, 
But if you want to get people into the game who haven't played it, um, especially with that fear of the unknown, once you play it, it makes sense and it just really clicks. Um, but yeah, the, the thing is now that's much easier to do with Beastgrave. Um, so you can just yeah pick up and play, even if it's just one game uh, a oh, week yeah. or I mean, per month with someone. I think I recruited so many people just being at a club or a gaming store and I'd see them and they'll be waiting for their opponents to turn up or perhaps their opponent's running late. And I'll say, look, have you got 15 minutes? I can show you the system. You can roll some dice while you're waiting. Um, and they'll play the game. And more often than not, they'll, they'll get into the game through that. I've, I've seen that happen with Magic players, with 40K players, with, with players from other systems as well. And because it plays so quickly and it's got that, that level of complexity that isn't daunting um, it means that people can pick up the game really, really easily. I think the core mechanics just are great for new players. And only mm. once they begin that journey of kind of deck building, they realize the game is actually quite, can be quite complex in a nice way. But by approaching people that just looked a bit bored, um, you say, oh, look, how, how are you doing? Are you, are you waiting for someone? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm waiting for my, my opponent to turn up. And it's about half an hour away. So look, great. Come with me, sit down. Let's, let's roll some dice. I'll, I'll teach you this game. And um, when they come over, you introduce them, you say hello, everyone's very friendly. And then um, you'll see them a few weeks later when you turn up at your, your local game space and they'll be there playing with other people, playing um, playing Beastgrave, et cetera. So it's a really, really, really important thing to do is just always be demoing. Even um, even if someone's just watching the game, you can just say, look, sit down. But I've, I've had- Yeah, games. just talk out what you're doing talk out what I'm doing or I've had games where um, someone's watching and I say, look, sit down, take over. And I sit next to them. And I just talk through some of the stuff they could do or some of the options and just get people handling the product, get them rolling dice or making those decisions. And they suddenly feel empowered about what's going on rather than being an observer or watching at a distance. And the thing that's always fun um, when I look at the London scene, you'll, you'll see us in like a club or a gaming store and everyone's very friendly. Everyone's always talking or laughing and having fun. It's not like some other systems where it's very serious and it means anyone looking in says, well, why are these guys having so much fun? And then they can come over, you can speak to them and you can give them a demo game very, very quickly. Yeah, because I think the important thing to remember is the worst thing someone can say to you is no. Um, and once you get over that, you, you do kind of have to become like a bit of a traveling salesman to an extent or saleswoman. Um, but there's no harm in that, just asking. Um, and yeah, usually once they get their toe dabbed into it, people usually bite. Um, but the important thing to remember is like when you're building a scene is to keep in mind what people's goals are. Because you may be aiming to be super competitive, winning or wanting to win every tournament you can go to, but that may not necessarily be the same view as everyone in your player base. Because um, we've already talked about it before, but you have to keep in mind what the general majority want to do with the game. Uh, like I think naturally, as you keep playing, everyone will just uh, naturally become more competitive as they learn and understand the game more. But it's a key point when starting out just to keep in mind what's everyone's goal and mindset for the game. Yeah, that's just a really good point. And we, we noticed a shift once the scene had been fairly established in London where this was around about the time after the organized play kits came out and they weren't that frequent and the game wasn't particularly well known by stores then. So it's quite challenging to convince stores to run events and you couldn't buy the kits directly from GW. So we had to become quite inventive on how to um, satisfy our burgeoning kind of competitive appetites. 
and we created leagues we created like um events within us within the community ourselves we tried all kinds of different things there's been doubles events or sorry team events there's been um kind of regular leagues where people can play multiple opponents over over a set period of time and um you know we try and get some small prizes but that the prize was never really the the reason people are playing it was just to play more underworlds and to um play in a in a set way so um as we talked about before people will be like okay I, I want to play a competitive build in if you're running a league or an event you can say look we're we're aiming it to be a competitive event but still very friendly um and then you'll get some questions around okay i'm a new player um should i still join my recommendation would always be yes but just let your opponent know beforehand so um they can maybe give you a bit more time to play or they can be prepared to kind of help you to with any rules queries or questions you may have but um yeah running running your own kind of events or own leagues and stuff really helps bring the community together and gives people a reason to play other than just kind of that regular kind of gaming night you may have and because yeah, i think um yeah, because I think uh, once we started getting more stores running tournaments and supporting Underworlds, I think the big thing that kept us playing and kept everyone playing was you setting up the leagues. Um, so regularly now, I think we're on the fourth or fifth league at the moment. Uh, so currently, uh, I'm waiting to play the final, but unfortunately, we literally can't. Um, but we've been playing uh, leagues now quite regularly for over a year. Um, and the thing is, um, even though it's still a league format, we've kept it quite uh, casual. So we, we've shaken up formats from time to time. This time was more like Champions League if you're football orientated. So we had like groups, group stages, then knockouts, quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. Um, but even then, so personally as a player, I don't really switch between warbands. Well, now I do, but I have a main warband that I usually just stick and play with. But for our league... Um, people allowed to switch decks and warbands every game like so once they've played someone they they don't have to stick to the same warband uh and like i found that helped innumerably like that's not how i like to play but it's how everyone else did and i found that was better to keep players because you could have locked people into a single warband and that kind of stuff but i i had to keep in mind not everyone plays like me and that's not everyone plays a single warband. A lot of people switch around. A lot of people like flip flop. They enjoy this warband at the moment, but then later on they want to switch and play something else because they get bored really quickly. Uh, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Obviously if your group's hyper competitive, well, like you, you just want to play in tournaments, you know, you, you're just very focused on that part. Then you can make it more competitive with tighter rules. Um, and if it's the other way, you can make it more relaxed but I think it's important to keep that balance for the league. Your your goal is not to have a winner. It, it, it's to get people to keep playing. And I think we've now for our league, we've added uh, first there was just winning and best painted. Now there's winning, best painted, most sporting um, just because we're also getting more players, but it's just to show there's more for people to do. And like, we, we're even talking about adding more like best in faction, that kind of stuff. Um, Cause yeah, at the end of the day, it's not getting people to win it's getting to people to keep playing and giving them a challenge or something they want to do because you build up rivalries while you're constantly playing your friends. And it's, yeah, it's just, remember, you're trying to get people to play, not to win. Yeah, and no, I think it's, it's really fun just to listen to the community and ask them as well because at the end of every league, we say, look, what's worked, what's hasn't? Here's some ideas, what can we change? 
there's um, what I think after we run the first league, I think one of the pushbacks from the community or one of the, the challenge trays that there's a gap starting to develop between um, the very kind of competitive players that were very mm. good at the game and the more casual players. And some of the casual players are saying, oh, do you know what? Like, I, I don't really want to play this person because I know I'm just going to turn up and lose. So then we introduced the kind of subgroups, those like group stages and stuff. So even people that weren't ultra competitive, they'll be able to win those small victories you mentioned. Like, uh, you know, actually, I didn't get to the final of the league. I didn't win, but I came top of group or I may have become top of faction, etc. Yeah, so, like I made the knockout stages of top 16. It's like you don't have to win, but you can set yourself a target that other people will enjoy to reach yeah exactly or, or there's people that are really keen on painting and they said you know what like i'm not going to spend hours of my life um building the most competitive deck out there but i want to have the most stunning looking warband on the table and they win that and that's what they're really proud of so yeah. it's just it's just listening to people and responding and making sure that everyone feels they have a reason to play and everyone feels welcome and everyone's having fun um, if you ever come across someone having fun, then there's probably, or sorry, if you ever come across someone not having fun, there's probably something quite seriously wrong because that person's probably likely to drop out and that, that can cause issues over a long enough timeline if you're not recruiting new players. So we always make sure when we're running a new league, we make sure that it's very welcoming for, for new players. We, we kind of entice new players to join in, even if they're not experienced. We kind of outline some of the things we just talked about that they could achieve. So yeah, it, it's it has leagues have been really useful. Um, going to tournaments as a group has been really useful, um, even for the people that haven't been able to attend, because then you get the the kind of reports when everyone meets back together as a group after the tournament on the regular gaming night. They can say, oh, "How did you do?" and you can talk about some events that happened. Yeah, and it kind of like that excitement carries over, so you have people going, "Oh, I, re- I wish I would have come." So definitely next time I'm going to come as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's like an infectious bug. <laughs> Yeah, even people that have moved to different parts of the country or even different countries entirely, we're still in contact with those guys. Oh, yeah. We, when when they come together for big tournaments, it's like seeing old friends almost and we share stuff online and it's, it's really nice to be able to engage with people in that way. Yeah, uh, but unfortunately, we've already touched upon it, but there's there's going to be people who quickly show themselves to be unreliable, especially when you're doing... Uh, a league uh, like with people dropping out uh, and unfortunately you're going to have to be prepared for people flaking out um, being unreliable cancelling at the last minute not uh, especially when you're running a league people not doing their games on time uh, dragging everything behind and you're going to have to be able to be able to manage yourself not let frustration build up just be frank with people just tell them you need to do this or that or like um you can't just cancel last minute because obviously people have issues like life gets in the way, but you just have to be prepared to manage with that kind of situation because it's not always going to be uh, sunshine and roses. There's there's going to be issues from time to time that you have to work on. Oh, yeah, on. I mean, absolutely. I mean, as you say, life life can get in the way. Um, so many different reasons why people can't can no longer make a regular commit, commitment to play or they, they find it challenging and you have to make sure you're quite flexible. So... We, um, in the leagues that we've set up, we try and recommend that people play on the, the regular gaming nights. But if both players can't commit to that within the timeline, they can play somewhere else. I've seen people play at their work or um, 
in in at homes or in or in different stores or pubs. In the pubs, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had I think I've had league games all over the place for different people, and also um, you can introduce things like um, like wildcard players. So if someone drops out, it doesn't mess up the stats. Someone can jump in as a wildcard and play that, or you can create a system where. If people don't play games, it doesn't mess with the overall standings potentially. So yeah, you've got like a ladder formats where it's just whoever's at the top. Uh, although that's not as that's more casual friendly because it's really drop in drop out. Um, but once again, you, it's just going to have to be what you can build around your local player base. Because uh, once again, yeah, it's looking for what's good for the whole, not just for you. Yeah, and or just a particular player. Yeah, and I, I think the only the only time it's been a bit challenging. Um, been really transparent has been in the underworld's off season. Yeah, so, um, you get to the end of a cycle and everyone's kind of figured out the stuff that they particularly enjoy or the stuff that really works. And then you've got those summer months, and those summer months can be quite tough because there's no new releases, so the meta isn't changing. People aren't as engaged with the game, and also that's when everyone goes on holiday, and yeah. it's quite hard to convince people to stay in a maybe a dark kind of gaming store or stay inside when it's you know, lovely sun outside and people want to go and have um, fun doing other stuff. So yeah. Cause the biggest issue I think we ran into was the first time we hit the summer. Uh, Cause once again, yeah, everything came out and then there was just hardly anyone during summer. And then what we realized, we thought it was just us. Like we'd somehow scared everyone away. Uh, but then we realized everyone had gone on holiday um, because it was summer. And why would you want to stay inside in the dark sometimes in a basement well lit basement with a bar but still people tend to unfortunately enjoy the sunshine more uh and you're going to have to live through those drought periods um because it you're not as we said you're not always going to get everyone and like summer months are usually the toughest because that's where the biggest droughts occur yeah and a lot of that's organic as you said due, due to the weather and holidays um and it's also just the underworld season that's developed hasn't it so um, it's really important to kind of keep track, a rough idea of how many people are turning up to regular nights, how many people are turning up to tournaments, because that helps you to build the context around how your scene's doing and how it's performing versus the average out there. Um, as you mentioned, when we first hit that summer drought, we're like, oh my God, have we have we done something wrong? Why is no interest in playing? And then only after going to other tournaments and speaking to people we've met through different parts of the country, it turns out that oh, it's actually a national thing, not just us. So um, that was was really helpful to build that context to understand the the bigger situation. Yeah, because I think once again, it's important to remember, uh, I think we've repeated it a few times already, but it's never going to be completely smooth when you're growing a scene. Uh, And it's it's an ongoing job. It never stops. Uh, Even now, uh, I've kind of, because I've I've kind of stopped playing a lot, I kind of focus more on growing the scene because I've dedicated a lot of my work now to just growing Underworlds in general. Uh, but you have to be prepared that this is like an ongoing thing because if if you stop it and there's no one else to pick up the the reins it will probably just tail off so it's it's something really important to keep in mind and like another good thing is if your scene is like large enough or you've got a larger group of players it's just even if even if you haven't got many is always having someone else as a backup in a way like if you can't make it have a friend or someone else who turns up regularly to be able to run things just so helps alleviate the pressure from you. Um, and just so things don't fall apart when you can't make it or can't commit. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a fantastic point. And it's, it's really good to, to have those people that are willing or want to step up 
um, with the same ideals as you because as you said it means that if if life gets in the way or something else comes up there's someone that can carry that torch and, and keep it going and it it does mean that um you can rotate things as well so you could have someone that comes in for a while and puts all that effort in and then they could say look do you know what i need a break i've got some other stuff going on and then someone else can step in and do that and um coaching those people and having those people available means that the the scene is almost self-sustaining and it, it kind of keeps ticking along just by having those people doing the work so it's um it's a really good thing and i, I think when you're looking for people to support in that it's people that aren't necessarily looking for control or to be be the main person in the scene you're looking for people that actually want to enjoy growing the scene playing and participating in the community it's um yeah it's, it's dead important to have the right kind of people to help you to do that because you don't want to have the wrong kind of person and cause some potential problems or to upset people yeah it's, it's a difficult thing because um say like well i'm not saying these people exist but you pick the most competitive person just to take over when you're not there they could inadvertently because they may not have the ability to understand the holistic view of the group and suddenly skew things to a very competitive mindset which in turn drive a lot of people away um so you're just looking someone who can kind of think the same and understand the group the same way as you can um because yeah it's it's you can't just pick anyone to run the group unfortunately because even your best mate could not see the same see things the same way as you can yeah precisely and um I think once you're at that level of maturity, I, I, I think you're pretty much in a good place. And then it's really just sustaining and and growing as and when needed. But um, yeah, because we're kind of like the end goal now, and like we we've gotten not so big, but it's like uh, we're like pretty much self-sustaining in the London scene. But that took us two two and a half years of work to get to that level. Um, and even now instead of uh, looking for new ways to branch up, we've looked at uh, playing other great gaming groups. Uh, so we're like in talks about, because we've already done like one area, like the London versus like the Essex group. Um, so we're just looking into things like that because there's like the Reading group as well. Um, so once you've got a stable area, like your own community built up and there's another one, if you're lucky enough nearby, you can always look at like events, like just days of playing each other, uh, even tournaments so we did a team tournament as well um, but there's a lot of lots of avenues to do but it, like yeah the key thing this isn't an ongoing process and if it stops it's likely to die off yeah and also just don't um you, you can't always rely on gw to provide the direction um they do do a lot of good stuff but you can definitely branch out we've we've played some games where we we don't necessarily follow the rules as written all the time um, we've yeah. made change, change a few things, um, change some formats. You know, we don't always follow the, the Grand Clash kind of tournament format just just to mix it up. And when you have a, a bunch of very experienced players, you can listen to those guys and um, you can try some different things. And you don't necessarily have to do things in, in the, the way that GW described all the time, um, just because it, it freshens things up and it makes it a bit more fun. Yeah, I think like a lot of things we've done from time to time is... Um like multiplayer game nights, even playing like the new scenarios, especially like when the giant, well, the glass mad gargant came out. Uh, we had a few of us playing that. And even if it was only just for like two or three weeks, that was enough of a palate cleanser for us. So when we did go back, we felt refreshed going back to the normal way to play. 
Um, but you shouldn't feel restricted by what's out there. Adapt and change to what suits you and the player base. Yeah. Um, but I think I think we've covered pretty much everything. Uh, but I'll just quickly go over the main points. Um, so it's most importantly being mindful of the group as a whole, not as your main desires. It's an ongoing process that will take a lot out of you. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of difficulties in the way. But if you keep at it, eventually, as long as with a little bit of luck, you should have a self-sustaining scene with lots of people to play against. Um, always be kind and helpful. Bring two decks. So bring your main deck and a casual deck to teach someone. Or if you're even lucky enough to have the space, just bring the core set around with you as well, because then you can quickly intro games out. And yeah, just always be kind and helpful and yeah, mindful of what the group needs as a whole. Yeah, and just to just add one more point on that, just demo the hell out of the game. Um, always be demoing and always be be welcoming to new players. Yeah, and uh, once you've got that out of the way, you can start focusing on other stuff because the issue is you can just live your life around tournaments. There's nothing wrong with that, but I find you get much more rewardment uh, and it's helped me improve so much by just having a local scene I can rely on to play and just chat against. It's just... It opens up so many new avenues. And I'm not saying you have to go out and build a scene, but if you want to, it's a very worthwhile investment. It just takes a lot of work. Um, but yeah, that's it for today. But uh, thank you, Jack, for being on the first episode of CritCast. It's an honor having you. Thanks for having me. I uh, hope you had fun. Oh, no, it's been, it's been a pleasure. As, as like... Um, I really can't stress enough how much the local London scene and, and hate in general, and as well as you, have influenced how I play Warhammer and how I play and view competitive play in general. Because, um, yeah, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for hate and you guys, especially you, because I wouldn't I wouldn't be here. Uh, I wouldn't be playing this game. I probably would have uh, bounced off and just gone back to 40k or Sigma, um, even though I still play them, uh, but I wouldn't be focusing so much. Um but yeah, thank you again, Jack. And thank you for everyone to listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And I'll speak to you. Well, I'll hopefully have another episode out for you guys shortly. So I hope you enjoy. Goodbye.